Welcome to episode 185 of Control the Controllables. And coming to you a little bit later than normal is our Australian Open 2023 review. And this is because my panel made such bad picks with their dark horses that they were embarrassed to come back on. But no, joking aside... We've been on holiday myself and the, and the family for the last couple of weeks, uh, so we actually missed the finals of, of the event. We weren't able to watch it live, uh, but feeling very relaxed, feeling ready to take on the year ahead, and I hope you are as well. Uh, but our panel, we have the same panel as we had for the preview, so that's Emily Webley-Smith, Top 200 WTA doubles player, been on the tour now for almost 20 years, you know, brings an, an incredible insight and knowledge into the game and is still live on the tour. So we get that on the ground feel. And then 2012 men's doubles winner at Wimbledon, Freddie Nielsen. And Kieran Vorster, the current fitness coach to Liam Brody, worked with many players over the years. And I'm delighted to say we also have Robbie Koenig, the amazing South African commentator. You will recognise his voice if you watch tennis anywhere in the world. If you have watched the Netflix show, you will recognise this man's voice and he brings a great colour to the show. And lastly, we have a little cameo from Sir Andy Murray's tennis coach, Mark Hilton. And we get 10 minutes of Mark talking about Andy's incredible Australian Open and what we have to look forward to for Andy moving into 2023. Brilliant listen. Sit back, enjoy wherever you are in the world, our Australian Open review panel. So big welcome to our Australian Open review panel. We are two weeks after the Australian Open has finished and I hold my hands up and apologise to that, but the family holiday was well worth it. And the, the first topic, guys, I'd, I'd love to jump into. We talked a lot about Netflix uh, in the in the preview before the event. And all of the Netflix stars flopped at the Australian Open. But we've managed to bring in the real star of Netflix in Robbie Koenig. And the question to you, Robbie, has this affected your career yet? Are you on the are you on the decline as well as the Netflix curse struck yet? <laughs> oh man. No, I'm I'm not. Hopefully I'm not. I'm I'm the lone survivor of the Netflix series. I'm still going strong, uh, DK, but uh yeah, it's been amazing to see what's happened with all those people who have committed obviously additional time and you wonder how that plays into their psyche. You know, having these people really up close and personal and whether they're doing things differently than what they would normally have done. You know, that's the question I ask myself because the cameras are there keeping a close eye on them. And and for you, I mean, I, I watched the I watched the show and it, it was I, I joke about you being the star, but you were absolutely prime you know you were in there did you know did you know that you were gonna your voice was going to be on so much or did that come as a shock to you as well i think yeah first of all it came as a shock i haven't seen um the breakpoint docuseries just yet but i just had a lot of feedback when i was in oz that you know a lot of my i guess my, my voice grabs were, were on the documentary and i remember doing a, a lot of next matches at the ao last year 
And obviously with him getting featured, uh, I suspected there might be some of my comms on it, but you never know how much gets put on it until the final edit takes place. But, you know, I, I feel like that's an honor. Um, I do pride myself on trying to highlight big moments in matches and capture the right words to match the pictures and, and hopefully not stuff it up. But I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. It means, it means the world to me when it comes from my peers, people like you or have other coaches and players come up to me and say, um, you know, you did a good job or you did a shit job. That's the feedback I value the most, eh, DK? No, you did a great job and you've got a show reel. If you ever are out of work, you've got a perfect show reel now. And guys, to bring you in and Emily, to bring you in first, uh, I know we're a couple of weeks on and the tennis world moves fast. You know, we're already starting to to look into the next events. But if we can take our mind back a couple of weeks, what were your general thoughts? How did the Australian Open leave you thinking at the end? Uh, first word, just Andy. Um, I absolutely loved um, and I watched as, as much as I possibly could of, of his matches and how amazing it was for, to see him wriggle his way into those matches that he did and and, and get to where he did. Um, but also, I think I was actually I was actually enthralled with the Sabalenka story as she kept as she kept making it through, and it was always that could she could she hold strong and would her serve hold strong like you questioned in the in the first one that we did, um, and I think when she won it and her reaction and also the level of the final, which I think sometimes in finals they're a little disappointing after great semi-finals or great earlier rounds um, but I actually think the women's final was standout for me in the quality um, but also how close it was and, and, and what a good contest it was um, and I actually really enjoyed watching I, I, I struggle sometimes watching tennis um, after playing so much um, sitting down for the entirety of matches but this Australia I think it, it really captured my attention and, and you mentioned there, Andy, and, and he certainly seemed to win week one, Freddie. And, uh, you know, week one just promised so much. I think there was there was so many matches, as, as Robbie, as you say, there, the highlight reel. There was so many highlights, so many moments. Week two, I heard an interesting statistic that the Sabalenka-Ribikina final was the first match. And correct me if I'm wrong here, anybody, but it was the first match that had a deciding set since the Monday of the second week. So we had these kind of like show-stopping matches in week one. Then week two just seemed to kind of happen matches, not that many big matches until until the women's final. But what was your takeaway, Freddie, from, from the two weeks? I was actually very underwhelmed. I, I don't remember the last time I was less enthusiastic about a slam. Uh, obviously, from my point of view, uh, being a Dane and D Danish Davis Cup captain, I was all in on Holger. But as soon as he was out, I'm like, I wasn't really caught by any of the storylines. I'm, I'm not really seduced by the tennis that's played. I've, I was a little bit more annoyed by some of the storylines. So actually, I was uh, like, it was one of the more insignificant slams in my time as a fan. So. That, that was kind of my takeaways. Like, I, I can barely remember any of the results as well. It was just kind of like, oh, well, whatever, and then move on. I think also because of the, obviously the women's draw was 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 pretty open, but the men's draw was, I mean, it was no Novak's to lose all the way through, right? Wasn't it? And 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 I was also a little bit, I mean, it, it is what it is. 
but me personally as a fan i get so i get bored with all the story about injury and not injury and look at battling through i mean let's be honest we could all see that he was playing tennis at an outrageous level and yeah he probably was injured i'm not refuting that but if you can play tennis at that level it's probably not hindering you that much so it's not like it needed that much attention in my opinion so i was a little bit i actually left it a little bit like it was it was one of the more disappointing fan experiences in my opinion anybody want to counter that well i'll tell you just being on the ground certain things and and i hear exactly where freddie's coming from certainly from his perspective i was i was big on holger i did a couple of his matches as well freddie um Actually, one of the one of the matches of the tournament for me was his match against Rublev, and the way that match finished was um, I haven't seen that too often. I made reference to that. I think it was <laughs> Becca Lendl final at the Masters when yeah, I saw that. Yeah, the, the dead lead court. Remember that, Freddie? Did he As did he, he tighten? Did he get a little tight, Holger, in the fifth? And I guess that experience will maybe stand him in good stead. Maybe a little bit, but I don't think he played a, a great match in total. And he still almost beat Rublev and he had some problems. Uh, he fell in the match before and wasn't completely fit. I mean, there are certain certain things about it. I think also one, as I remember, 6-2 to 6-3, Rublev hit a winner that was like half an inch in or something like that. So it was small margins. And I think he did really well and was unbelievably unlucky not to come away as a winner. But go, keep on, Robbie. Yeah, I know. There were so many ironies in that match because... He looked down and out. He looked like he was struggling. Then he's going for broke. That's what gets him back into the match. And then the tiebreaker comes around. He gets passive again. Suddenly, when there's the opportunity for him to win, you know, serve for the match, got passive, which is it's this is where the sport it it really does amaze me how how the thinking is. Because if we're sitting and watching from the sideline, it's so obvious how he has to play, just keep playing aggressively. Yet in that moment, um, it's fascinating how players just go into their shell. So I hope for his sake, it's a huge learning experience. But um, I just wanted to get back to the initial point we were making about being on the ground. I'll tell you what was a nice story for me um, was the Americans doing well. And certainly from a television tennis world perspective, if you have Americans doing well, I think it's healthy for the sport. You know, the, the Europeans have dominated for so long now. And there's a, a nice bunch of young Americans that kind of are, are all riding this wave of, of American success. And I think for me, that was one of the nice underlying stories to this major, because I think it's from a commercial standpoint, it's always good if you can have Americans doing well. So I guess that was the story away from the big guys. We always have the attention on Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, um, Andy to a, a smaller extent as well this year. Um, but the American story for me was a good one. And that you felt it on the ground. There was a lot of attention around them. Obviously, they didn't go all the way and win it. But, you know, Tommy Paul going deep certainly helped that market. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that yeah. to maybe add to what Freddie was saying. And, and that's, I think, on the Robbie, I think that's on the men's and the women's side, isn't it? Uh, you know, we, we spoke before the US Open last year. And all we talked about actually was the Americans are coming. The Americans are coming. It's going to be, we actually maybe naively didn't mention it before the Australian Open. But I think, you know, I, I picked out Corder. We spoke about Corder as a dark horse. You know, he's certainly a Grand Slam winner in the in the making. You know, Pagula, I think, is a story as well in itself, you know. And I, and I don't know if you guys have seen or read the, read the letter that she's, the open letter that she's written in the last couple of days 
you know, she's undergoing a, a lot of challenging times with with the illness of her mum um, that she's been very open about. And maybe Freddie, our our winner would have come in, you know, maybe that we can hang our hat on the fact that she's gone through family difficulties, why she, she didn't quite make it through. And I, I think it's a great point, Robbie. But I at this point, I want to bring in you, Vozzy, because uh, Freddie's touched on it. You know, Novak Djokovic the story, the non-story, whatever you want to call it. You know, I think I remember Freddie saying Novak is going to win it every single day and two times on a Sunday. You know, we, we felt, we felt pretty strong that, that Novak was, was the man for the title. Craig Tiley has since come out, which I found a little bit surprising and said that, that Djokovic was carrying, I believe a three centimeter tear in his hamstring um, to which the, the, the tennis player who doesn't have access to 24 hours doctors and physios is saying, well, you can't play tennis with a, with a tear in your hamstring. So, so to bring you in from the physical side, Vozzy, is it possible to play tennis with such a tear? And what's your take on, on the, the Djokovic story or, or non-story as Freddie would put it? Yeah. Hey guys. So, so for me, um, when you cross the white line and you lace up your shoes, um, you, you, in my, in my mind, you're ready to compete and give a hundred percent. So, I would, uh, I, I don't believe in that, uh, that the injury was as severe. But if you have a three centimeter two uh, tear, that's a great two hamstring. Um, and it is pretty much, uh, impossible to play on a three centimeter tear. And further, to, further to that, um, I saw a couple of tweets from Enzo Couchard who basically said, you know, the French doctors ha had advised him that if you ever pull a muscle, you don't stretch, um, which is correct because you've got the micro tears and you, you basically need those to heal. And, and if you're stretching, you just, you're actually just breaking them even further. And he said that, you know, Novak was stretching a ton, um, you know, in between, in between his matches, um, which, which contraindicates any medical advice that you would give somebody. So, um, I don't, I don't know, uh, what was going on, but clearly for me, he was, he was, um, uh, good enough to compete. And so when you, you know, when you, if you lose the match, it's like, oh, I, I was slightly injured. No, it's bullshit. You know, if you, if you're good enough to cross the line, the, the injury is not going to hinder your, uh, your comp uh, being, being able to compete. And when I've worked with players, you know, Wayne used to have a duck, uh, a duck to, uh, strains a lot. And I used to say to Wayne, if you're ready, if it if it's if it's if it's going to hinder you, pull out. If you can't, if you feel you cannot compete 100%, pull out. I said because uh, it will play in your mind. Um, but if you cross that white line and you play and you lose, there's no excuses. Um, but and but second, with Djokovic, Vozzy, just to, before you get to the second point, with Djokovic, it seems to be the other way from a mentality standpoint that it almost plays with the opponent's mind rather than playing on his mind. Yeah, but that's the same. That's that's the same with with with. I think with everybody. Yes, it's a it's a mind game, and so the opponents are are, are obviously thinking. Well, I need to change my A game, of my natural game that comes to me when I'm playing because because of this. Uh, maybe I need a drop shot and more get them coming forward more, um, and takes them out their comfort zone. But if the players just focus on their A game um, and focus on their best and not compare themselves to the best. Um, they they give themselves the best chance. So, yeah, he probably played mind games with with everybody that played him, um, and he played on that. Um, but you know, obviously, no, no no getting away from the fact that you know to, to win the Australian Open is no mean feat. And 
you know, I'm not taking away from the fact that, you know, he played unbelievable and, and won it, but I, I would play down the severity of the injury. And it's, 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 I'm surprised that, you know, Craig Tyler, Tyler's a tournament director and um, not a, not a medic. And he's come out and said that versus any of his medical team actually coming out and, and saying, what was, you know, what, what was it? Was it a slight strain? Was it a strain? Because it, it seemed like the more matches he played, the, the less taping he had on his leg. And then, you know, he, he, he had kinesio tape on, on in the final and not bandaged up. So it's the whole thing's a bit bizarre to me. Um, and second to that, I think there was a little bit of favoritism towards Novak. Um, you know, I, I, I can't get over the fact that, you know, the whole idea of playing a Grand Slam is <clears throat> each player should be challenged at in different conditions, different times, challenging yourself uh, on quick turnarounds, if so be it, you know, like, you know, you know, Andy Murray to me is, is the, um, the current day Braveheart in terms of what he had to endure. But Novak, every single match was not before 7 p.m. So he had a perfect routine of, of how, you know, when he finished the next day, how he would recover, then the following day, how he'd warm up for a seven o'clock match. So his body clock was was in was synced to to every single match. And I, I find that I find that unfair on everybody else that, you know, had to endure conditions in the day, shadows of the court. He came out, you know, probably, you know, heat wise, same conditions every single time. And, you know, and, and yeah, you know, as I say, had a good routine. When you look at Andy, you know, when he played Kokonakis, finishing at that ridiculous time, four in the morning, and then, you know, hobbling in, you know, late that afternoon. Um, I spoke with Matt Little, you know, about what his recovery strategy was. And, and the, the most important thing for him was to sleep, 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 sleep. Because obviously when you're sleeping, your body's repairing. Um, there's neural repair, there's muscular repair, there's psychological repair. So he was sleeping as much as he could between finishing at 4 a.m. in the morning to, to when he, you know, he had to come out, you know, again and play Bautista. So I, I, I find it um, extremely unfair, um, you know, and also to add to Fred's point, and I know this is congestion with the calendar, that from Europe, from Europe or from everywhere around the world, but let's talk about Europe, there's an 11-hour time change. So players, players going down there, it's going to take them 11 days to acclimatize to the conditions and then, then try and develop. So these players are going, going in there, whether they like it or not, they're going in undercooked. They're going in uh, not acclimatized, and that's, that will add to the first-round losses, second-round losses of these players in the, first, in the first week of the event. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's basically my take on 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 Djokovic, and 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 I'm not Djokovic's biggest fan. Um, however, I am tennis biggest fan, you know. And and ultimately, Djokovic is now a 22 time Grand Slam champion, you know. And 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 I would like to also just turn our attention to his brilliance because I I think sometimes when he when he wins a Grand Slam, we're oh Djokovic has won boring Grand Slam. You know, but I and and to bring this to you, Robbie, because you mentioned Tommy Paul, and I I love Tommy Paul. I think he's great for the game. Actually, I think a lot of those Americans they've got that you know tier four. I think they've got a nice they've got a nice energy about them that I think can open up a different market commercially as well. And and he said my plan going into that match was to serve and volley and play drop shots, and I didn't serve volley once and I didn't play one drop shot. 
you know, and you think, well, how the hell is that possible for a Grand Slam semi-finalist? But I think that is the mark of the brilliance of Novak Djokovic, that he was unable to implement the game plan that he wanted to because of the quality that Djokovic is bringing to the court, Robbie. I think you've encapsulated it beautifully, right in a nutshell there. I sat courtside for a, a few of his matches in Adelaide and at the AO, and I just could not believe the length that this guy's able to keep on his shots, both when attacking and in defense, it's ridiculous. You know, the guy hitting the ball within within a foot of the baseline, sometimes half a foot of the baseline, and you look at it and you think he is totally in control. Whereas when other players do it, because the, their depth varies quite a bit, whenever it's close to the, the sideline or the baseline, I'm thinking, oh, do you actually mean to hit it that close? Whereas when Novak plays, um, you always think he's got total control of the ball, even within an inch or two of the line. And it makes it now impossible to attack the guy. And, you know, you have to start with an incredibly good serve. And that's why somebody like Kyrgios can give him a hard time because he can at least stay with them to three all, four all, five yeah. all. And in those tight moments when Novak is under a bit more stress, um, he can hurt him, but there's very few players that can do that, DK. And and for me, that's that's what's so amazing. And then you couple that with this guy's mental fortitude. And mentally, for me, he's in a different galaxy to everybody else on the tour. And I think he has been for a long time. And and I really enjoyed Fozzie's pickup about the mind games or whatever else was going on with the injury, because I laugh at all the media attention that it gets. Focus on your own effing game, Right. Why are you so worried about what's going on on the other side of the court? In fact, you should be happy that he's injured. Um, I, I never understand this obsession with what's going on with your opponent, right? I've got to do whatever I can to beat the guy. And if I'm getting distracted by what's happening on the other side of the court, that is my mental inadequacies, you know, being played out. If I go and complain about it in the press afterwards, like Quaco did, dude, come on, man. Get mentally tough. Oh. Um, so I have got no sympathy for media or people having a, a bitch and moan about Djokovic's injury, right? It's like, focus on your own stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so just to add on that, um, there's a guy called Todd Gonquer who's written a book saying, um, for, uh, leave for God's sake. Um, and he, when, when I was at Baylor, he came and did a lot of talks uh, to the team and he worked with Clemson football. Uh, he's very renowned in the States. And there's a there's a there's a picture of of Chadler Close and Phelps uh, do, doing butterfly, and they, it's like ten meters out, and Chadler Close in his butterfly stroke looks over to Phelps, and that was the difference of a hundredth of a second of him winning gold and and losing. And the point he was trying to say, and just to to reiterate it, is if if the player the playing Djokovic focuses on his best and not comparing himself to the best and believes his best will be good enough to win based on the circumstances that Djokovic is presenting on the court, then they'll be fine. But yeah, so, so they, they, they were definitely mind games and they were, they were, they were focused on the best and not focusing on their best. And if I can add a point to that, for example, I, I don't necessarily think that Joe Novak is doing anything to get in the heads of opponents. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a Danish athlete who once went into the Olympics being a massive favorite and he was struggling with the pressure. So he basically invented a, an injury 
to 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 ease the pressure for himself so he can compete yeah. a little more under the oh I'm hurt anyway. Uh, I'm not saying that Novak faked an injury, so don't give, give that. But sometimes it can be nice to kind of instead of uh, taking on that entire pressure on yourself, you can kind of have an outlet to 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 give yourself some peace of mind and and some some some. Uh, some calmness when you go in and, and maybe it, it helped Novak in that way too, because yeah, there's the injury. There's the great uh, tear. Okay. It surprises me a lot with that quick comes out. Isn't that kind of stuff? Medical stuff. Isn't that uh, confidential? It must've been coordinated with Novak if he says it in public. And then at the same time, like Robbie says, focus on yourself because there's the eye test. I mean, we, yeah, maybe the scan shows a three centimeter tear. I see an unbelievable athlete who is grinding from side to side, not not missing a ball. So uh, they're, they're, there's a few different aspects to it as well. I think there is, and I, th- I think they're all great points. And I think I think we see it as well with we see it with all athletes, don't we? You know, and uh, we jump on Novak. Rafa was at last year French Open. They said he had a tear in his in his stomach, you know. But uh, we 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 hold Rafa in a little bit different esteem than than we do on Novak. And I, and I think it is something that we see we see at all levels. We see it in juniors. We see, you know, the immense pressure that these players are under is is hard for us to imagine, you know. And 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 you know there has to be an outlet somewhere. And and as I mentioned, Rafa, and I want to bring you in here, Emily, because. I had a thought through the Australian Open and I know it's relatively short term, but I've had a little look this morning and in his last eight matches, he's two and six. And in those eight matches that he's played, those eight matches have been played since his great friend and foe, Roger Federer, retired. So my question to you, Emily, is did Rafael Nadal die as a tennis player the day that Roger Federer... (laughs) retired ah oh, that's a good question I mean I think when, when you look at it overall with Rafa and his last year and everything else and I know that we all can kind of think in our heads whether someone's injured whether it's not I think none of us actually know what's going on um, behind the scenes with someone and I think you could see on Rafa's team the how much they felt for him and and what he perhaps he'd been through with trying to stay healthy um, when you saw his wife's reaction um, when he got hurt again. Um, and I do wonder, I mean, I think time is running out in terms of his body and the w- more so with the way that he plays related to his body. Um, but also I think I think there's bound to be an element when people start retiring of his age and of his era around him where he he feels that and he knows that his time is is numbered in the sport. Um, but I think it gets harder, definitely, as you get older, um, to to deal with the, the the body doesn't recover as quickly. Um, you know all the all the things that we know about older athletes. You can you can handle pain longer, um, but you also know when it's more serious um, than in order for you not to be able to compete. And I think you start to know your body better. And I I think Rafa. I mean, it was pretty clear when he, when he looked up. And, and I think what we said on the previous podcast, I think maybe the French um, this year, I mean, you never know. There might be a complete rejuvenation. And with all the best doctors and the best training in the world, Rafa might be reborn. But I think um, time is limited. And it's uh, 
it's a real shame because I, I mean, I personally, I'm a big Rafa fan, and I'd love lo love to see him play um, for a few more years at least. But Robbie, to bring you in on this, and and I know it's quite an extreme word to say that someone's died, and and I'm not saying he's died, but if we go back to that in London, you know, all of us on our TV screens, I believe you were you were there, Robbie. I think you were you were commentating on the event, but it we all sat there. That wasn't just emotion. That was like that was deep. Like it was it was really strong, and it. It was that it was that feeling, and just seeing how Rafa was as he sat next to Roger, it 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 did feel like a part of him. And I think he's even come out since and said, you know, it definitely has affected him because almost what is tennis without Roger next to me, you know? And and it just feels like maybe a little bit has has died, a little bit of the the desires maybe maybe gone. I don't know what your take is on the ground. Okay, I'll ask this question to the rest of the panel as well, because it's a great discussion. And how much of that dying inside of Nadal is related to the fact that he had such a good record against Roger? And, you know, he didn't feel as threatened by Roger as what he has felt by Novak. So it was a lovely, cozy matchup for him, if I can call it that, yeah. because... He got more Ws, but now, you know, since 2013, Novak has been a horrible matchup, not only uh, on a hard court, but, you know, on everything else, on clay, he's become a lot more problematic. So you can almost understand why he's, he's disappointed, he's down, that the guy that he's had a good record is retired, and now I've got to put up with this damn guy who's been kicking my ass for the last couple of years and I don't like it. So, you know, I, I ask myself how much of that plays into the psyche of Nadal. Uh, and it's only going to get more tougher because Djokovic is still as fit as he's ever been. And he is more motivated than ever to put these guys in the rearview mirror and put them far in the rearview mirror. Freddie, what do you think? I think that you're onto something. I think that maybe it became real for Rafa when Roger stopped and he's like, okay, might be my time soon. Uh, my body is aching. And uh, yeah, like you said, Novak is basically on track for what, 20, 28 slams, 30 slams. And I think, yeah, I think he is putting his body through so, so much to compete with Novak and he's tearing himself apart and he realizes that that he's not going to be able to compete at the end of the career because Novak is just going to keep pounding away. So I think you're onto something there, uh, definitely. Um, for me, maybe it was just kind of, sometimes you need a moment like that to realize that the end is near. You kind of know it at the, at the back of your head and... And Rafa probably knew somewhere deep down that it's that it's coming to an end. But then when, when Roger is there and all the emotion comes out, I think it's it's inevitable that he starts thinking about himself and realizes that yeah, he might be coming to an end soon and might not be be the one ending with the most slams because I think if one of them, Roger, Rafa, maybe Novak had twenty slams and the second most had fifteen or something or retired, they would retire. I think they keep going for this unbelievable, insatiable uh, desire to have the most slams. And Vozia, I can see you chomping at the bit saying, when is 
when is Kino going to bring bring Sabalenka up? You know, you got you want you want to be able to you know your moment of glory. But just be, before I move over to the women's event, which I absolutely will, I you said it again, Emily, earlier, and and Vozzy, you said it again. I I follow you all on Twitter to to pick up your tweets so I can bring them into these podcasts. And I absolutely loved what you, what you wrote, Emily, and it's exactly right. And you can, you can visualize it, you know, how Andy Murray, how he wriggles into matches, (laughs) you know, and, and you use the word Braveheart Vozzy and, it was just incredible. And, and we go back to that weekend. I'm with you, Freddie. I think it was an underwhelming Aussie Open in general. But I think week week one was quite spectacular because of Andy Murray. And maybe that's the British thing. Maybe that's our personal thing with Andy. But I think if we go Berrettini, I mean, Berrettini was one of the serious favourites to win the event. You know, Kokonakis was hot the way that he won those matches. So tell the listeners, what do you mean by by wriggling into the matches, Emily? Give us give us a little bit more depth to that. I mean, he was getting whacked. <laughs> he was getting whacked. He was getting outplayed. He was a million miles away from the level that we've seen him produce. And yet, with that, um, a set, whatever he was down in, in each time, he just he just finds little ways and little weaknesses and backs himself to stay with it and and keep making it as difficult as possible even if he's slightly under the level that he's wanting to produce or even if he's he's creating chances and not quite taking them knowing that at some point he will keep getting another chance that he will take and that will give him an opportunity to 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 fight and to get back um to get back on a scoreline basis into the match but you can almost see it change And you can almost see him change in one or two moments when you just think, uh, even if the whole world believed that Andy couldn't win that match, Andy still believes that he can. And I think it's I think it's absolutely incredible. I mean, the Berrettini match. okay. I mean, I wonder if he's practiced a whole load of midcourt backhands running for terrible drop shots (laughs) like he did on the match point that he missed um, since then, because. I mean, he had it. He he literally had the match right there. But for me, the Kokinakis match was phenomenal. And I lost my voice shouting at the television where I was so excited for Andy. But um how good is he? And 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 that fight and and all the tactical all the tactical variation and everything that he does to to run and fight and, and keep himself in with a chance and then being able to turn that around. I just think it's absolutely unbelievable, and I think he deserves so much respect for 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 the way that he's able to do that. And as each match went on, I think you felt oh, he can't do it again. He can't do it again. Um, and he just he just keeps proving himself time and time again that he's not done yet. Robbie, do you remember Emily when Kokonakis was serving for the match? And I remember it distinctly because I was just about to go to bed thinking the match was done and dusted. Uh, five three third set. Uh, everything's going perfectly according to plan, and he gets the time violation. And yeah. right there, Kokonakis loses it for no reason whatsoever. Completely. And you're like, why is he? Why is he going so crazy when he's totally in charge of the match? It's it's just a warning. It's just a, you're not losing a first serve. You're not losing a point. Umpire's just saying you're taking a little too long, right? And in that moment, you talk about 
waiting for that opportunity to yeah. jam your foot in the door, to wriggle in. That was it for me. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a reflection, though, isn't it, of how Kokonakis felt at that time, you know? And yeah, I think... and also I think with Andy, that's that his natural competitive instinct and his match player mentality, it wouldn't matter if Andy was playing tiddlywinks or something. He would literally find a way to compete where he feels it from the opponent. He felt that energy, I think, from Kokonakis. Yeah. He knew it. He knew it. You could see it in his body language. You could see it in the it's slightly more intent about the way what he was doing, and it was just whether he could he could hold that long enough to then to then you know equal with that set and then and then come back into the match. But I think you're right. I think you're right, Robbie. I think you could see it, and you're like, why on earth is he edgy at this at this time? <laughs> and it's tennis at its best because it's obviously it's never done until it's done with the scoreline. And, and why I love us talking about Andy and, and why, you know, people that are listening to these podcasts, we have a lot of tennis players, a lot of tennis parents, tennis coaches. He just loves it. You know, you want to know, you want to know what it, what it takes sometimes. It's like just this absolute obsession, love of the sport. And I love what he said is he said, you know, you guys see me as this grumpy guy who's shouting. And he said, that's when I'm at my happiest, you know, and that just, that that raw love of of competition that I don't think many people in the world can probably understand because I I think that's the the uniqueness of an Andy Murray you know and obviously there's there's other players that have it um but it is incredible but I, now I think is a is a great time as well for me to to bring in Mark Hilton Andy Murray's coach to hear a little bit more about that as well. So Hilt's great, great to have you join the panel. And uh, first of all, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well. Just talking, talking to the panel here, and we all agree that Sir Andy Murray won the first week of Australian Open. You know, it was talked about it being a bit of an underwhelming Australian Open once the second week started, but I think he was the the name on everyone's lips about the first week. And, you know, as he's coach working strongly in his corner, what is it that he did? Because, you know, bionic man, you know, as Vozzy said, you know, brave heart, you know, to get himself into, into that shape to be able to go back to back five set matches and still have something in the tank to come out against Batista. Maybe it was one step too far. Is that something that he changed how he worked in pre-season? You know, how did he set himself up for that? Yeah, I mean, he's it's, it's certainly the biggest positive to come out of that other than the, the fact of of winning, you know, big matches again on the biggest stage, which he's, which he's obviously done so much of in the past, was was how he's, his body reacted, how he felt um, through the tournament. Because, you know, the back end of last year, that was certainly a priority. Um, you know, he he publicly... Um, stressed his the importance of that and not feeling not pe feeling positive on the court in terms of his physicality. So going into preseason, there was there was a huge emphasis on on making some gains there. Um, in a, in a, in a slightly different fashion, I would have to say the 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 process that was taken was was very different to even ways he'd gone about it before. Um, a lot of data involved in terms of what areas of his SNC needed addressing um whether it was his endurance whether it was his ability to maintain power whether it was his 
concerns around cramping, um, which he experienced um, certainly for about half a dozen times in the back six months of the year. Um, so there was a very focused approach, but ultimately it was it was that bedrock of hard work which he's always sort of fallen back on in the past, which is which first of all delivered delivered the work over the preseason, but also helped build the confidence going into the start of the year. And and how does you know when we sit there and I think anybody anybody that's listening to this right now can adhere to this. Andy gives us a heart attack every time we watch him. You know he's he's absolute box office. You know every match. You know in those positions, the comebacks that he has now. Now I believe he's the the all time comeback king of five five sets. As someone who's in his corner. You know how how is it for you? You know how what watching that? How do you how do you deal with the nerves and the ebbs and the flaws of that? Well, it's quite incredible. I mean, the the, the match against Kokinakis, you, you go through different phases, don't you, in those sort of matches? Because being two sets down, the the inevitable thought of it's it's too far. This, um, given historically, especially recently, issues with his body. Um, and off, off the back of the Berrettini sort of best part of five hour match it, you think it's too much but uh, you kind of underestimate sort of greatness in a way don't you and you know he, he did incredibly well to come back and, and as that match progressed the second round you kind of felt like probably after the third set if, if he could if he could start the fourth set in, in, a, in a decent manner and, and stay with stay with Tanasi, then he was going to give himself an opportunity and you could feel the groundswell of belief and the support that he got obviously even though he's playing against Australian the atmosphere in the crowd was was certainly amazing and and would have would helped influence the way he was um you know I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that he was very close to being out in the first round right I mean with Berrettini having an opportunity on match point you know dumping a relatively straightforward backhand yeah. on match point Things could have looked very differently, but as we know, this is this is the game we play, and you know the reality is he's he's capitalised on that opportunity he had and played some of his best tennis in the biggest moments, which again for him I think is such a big thing because he's gone through a period of you know let's let's be honest here not winning many big big matches on big stages like he used to. So I, I really think it's a it's a fantastic start for him to to not only give him more belief going into the rest of this year in his physicality, but in his game, uh, playing his best tennis when it matters, winning winning the biggest points. And, you know, I, I really feel like he's in a position now where he he will be ready to, to continue that. And em- Emily was just saying that, you know, and she tweeted about this during the match, nobody, nobody wiggles into matches like Andy Murray. And, and Robbie then rightly picked up that at two sets to love 5-3 Kokonaka serving for the match he got annoyed with the umpire over it there was a time violation and and that almost gave Andy the perfect space to start his wiggle in, in into the match you know have you ever seen anyone that, that finds their way into matches like Andy does and how does he do it you know, that's a really good point by Robbie because so many things happen in over the course of that period of the match, whether over the course of five hours or however long they were on court, that you, you do you do forget things, and that was certainly a a, a a moment which which made Andy turn the screw a little bit. You can say, 
um, he, he's, he's developed an unbelievable habit of hanging around. And often, I think, when you see him potentially in, in a moment of stress, discomfort, it's kind of when he's is most dangerous as well, because um, he, he, he sometimes needs a bit of that to, uh, to, to sort of fire him up, to to put him in a position where he can turn matches and he, as, as you say he's, he's got that record now he's it's something another record to be proud of for him um he's, he's a sensational athlete he's a sensational competitor and and certainly one of the best that's been and and as you mentioned there before hilts it's got to set him up well now for 2023 you know that you could i think we all we all feel all of andy's emotions you know we're all massive supporters we we all know where we were when he won his first wimbledon we all can can relate to him and almost like have got sort of certain landmarks as we go through his go through his career with him and it did feel towards the end of last year that he was suffering you know he was he was suffering mentally he was suffering a bit physically you know, you could see the the emotional pain that he was going through. Whereas, even though he lost in the third round, it feels like no, no, he's he's back. You know, and he's he's in a position now where he can win those big matches. Berrettini was one of the absolute favourites to win that event. You know, and to to take him out the way that he did, the crowd favourite in Kokonakis playing the way that he was. You know, and, and now he puts himself in a position where. 2023 is an exciting place for Andy Murray to be. Yeah, exactly that. And I, and I think, as I said earlier, it, it, it comes back to some of the bedrocks for him, which have, or the foundations, which he's always laid in throughout his career. And there's no doubt he stripped it back at the end of last year and said, okay, what, what is going to help me regain that confidence, regain that belief? find my level which he, he still believes he has um, and it, and, it, and it was making a plan non-negotiable this this is what we're doing over this period of time this is the work I'm going to put in and then just going through the routine of doing it day in day out he thrives on that he thrives on the routine he thrives on the on the almost the monotonous of just repeating as we see it not only with his tennis but the work he puts in and he, he made a case for that over the six week six week period from when he's stopped competing at the end of last year to, to to lay that foundation again. And I think it really, you know, you, you go into the start of the year, there's always, it's not easy when you haven't competed for the best part of, of eight weeks. Um, he didn't play a bad match in Adelaide. He played against a guy who was in red-hot form in quarter. Um, it was a tough draw. Um, he could have come unstuck in Australia, but as you, as you said, the, the, it wasn't just coming through the match against Berrettini, it was the way his body responded. I know I know he was suffering against Bautista. I think anyone would have, but I think even on reflection, he was happy with how his how his body felt. <laughs> yeah. Um considering where he was, you know, he was moving very well throughout that tournament on the back of all those hours on the court. Um and you know certainly gives us this confidence moving forwards into this year. Yes, there's going to be tough draws. Yes, he's in a position ranking-wise where he's he could come up against the best players at the very start of the week. But I, I know that not many players will want to see their name against Andy at the moment. And um, and now you hope he can carry some of that momentum, obviously, into this next swing, which is coming up. And lastly, before you go, Hills, because I know you've just managed to grab a little space to join us. What does success look like for, for Andy Murray in 2023? Well, 
I would say that he will always have the ambition to be going deeper in slams. Um, you know, for someone who's achieved what he, what he has achieved, he will always set the bar as high as he possibly can. Um, and that will be at the back end of the biggest tournaments. That'll be winning winning matches consistently throughout the tour, adding to his tally of, of tournament wins, staying healthy, because if he does that, I think he gives himself a great chance. So they're the kind of main main points. Well, good luck to Team Murray in 2023. It's uh, it's great for you to join us, and uh, we'll get back get back to the panel now, Hills. But uh, we'll see you out there in Indian Wells in a couple of weeks. We'll do. Thanks, Kina. Cheers. But now, Vozzy, it's uh, it's your time. It's your the floor. The floor is yours. You know, we we ridiculed you. Sabalenka can't win a Grand Slam. She chokes. She loses a serve. She doesn't have it in in her. But you, you, you were pretty sure. You told us you'd seen a training in Dubai in preseason. You told us that she was ready, and she certainly was. Well done to Sabalenka, and well done to you on on picking the women's champion. Yeah, I mean, it was lovely to see. You know, very close up. You know, and she was working hard at a serve. I, you know, obviously it stood in practice. I didn't see it as an issue. Um, you know, there were a couple of wobbles in the Australian Open final. Um, she served, I think it was seven doubles uh, over the three sets, which probably for her is, is very, very good. But I think, uh, you know, on the whole, she she held her composure and, uh, you know, playing Rybikin is not easy. They, they were both serving pre- pretty big um, in, in the final. And, yeah, was, it's just nice to see that uh, you back a racehorse and, and you, you get a winner. Hey, what do they say <laughs> every now and then a blind squirrel finds a nut, Quasi? <laughs> it's, if you, it's, hey, listen! If you back the same racehorse time and time again, there's a chance it's going to come through. Huh? Huh? Well, I don't know. <laughs> my, 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 my other racehorse that I was always trying to back was Ange Jobber, and then since I stopped backing her, she started doing well. So, uh, <laughs> so there's, there's, maybe I'm a good omen. And this Amorva hasn't come through for me yet, so you know maybe we need to we need to stick to that. And McNally certainly not come through for Freddie, but we'll yeah, but at least we're backing at least we're backing players that are actually playing the tournament, huh? <laughs> what do you uh, reckon? What, what do you reckon, Em? Yeah, no, no exactly. I, I can't. I've got nothing to say on that whatsoever. But I, if if Noskova if Noskova wins a WTA title or a or a Slam in the next three years, then I'm gonna just. I'm just going to sit there and smile. We, ag- we agreed with <laughs> you. I will, I will say, I will say one thing with with these calls. They were rough two weeks because my wife, who has very little background in tennis, she actually called a better dark horse than I did. Uh, she had Fruvatova, and uh, to be able to go down not only on the podcast but in the in the household with a with, with a with a girl who used to hit more balls into the Hudson River when we played in New York than she did in the court, that was rough. <laughs> but uh, I gotta I gotta give her some credit though. She uh, that that was uh, that was a decent call. That I might take her her advice before the next previews. Or we might just bring her on instead of you, Freddie, for the French Open. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, to bring it back to Sabalenka, Robbie, uh, I I found this really interesting, and uh, actually I have. I have this discussion a lot with with a player that I work with, Lloyd Glasspool, um, who he's completely against sports psychologists. Like, and I'm not saying anything that he wouldn't say. He said it on the podcast here. 
absolutely doesn't believe in sports psychologists. Don't believe in it. You know, don't need it. Whereas actually what he what he doesn't quite understand is he's when he when you hear Lloyd speaking about tennis, he's got a lot of good good tools in place over the years working with tennis coaches who have got sports psychology background. But I thought it was really interesting that Sabalenka just, you know, came out and said, I got rid of the sports psychologist. Uh, so, psychologist, I was trying everything. I was trying to sort everything out. And it's a bit like that golf swing, isn't it? You know, when you, you're trying to do every little last little bit of your golf swing, whereas when you just stand and just turn and just give it a whack, it often, it often goes a little bit better. So um, no sports psychologist, led to her winning a Grand Slam. It's not quite as simple as that, I'm sure. Uh, but what's your take on that, Robbie? Well, you, you've highlighted one of the most important things I'd written next to Zabalenka's name. I've just written there, sports psychologist. But she, as you said, she tried for a while. But for me, um, the ultimate decision was to take ownership herself. So you've seen the same press conference as me. And she said, that was the difference. She said, I'd heard all the information, but at the end of the day, it was down to me and me alone to control that thought process under pressure on my serve. And I always think when, when any sports man or woman can take ownership and not play the blame game every time something doesn't quite go their way, they're on the right path and they're on the right path in a big way. So in many ways, I'm not surprised that she got the result that she did when I hear her speak like that. But let me tell you what, to take that step, to take complete ownership of your game and, and any problems that you have, can I tell you how much respect I've got for an athlete? Because all of us are in the tennis circles and we know how often players are so quick to blame the coach or the management or the parents or somebody else rather than take ownership of their own results and, and no excuses. I loved it. I absolutely yeah. thought that was such a powerful message that she sent out, especially to younger players. I, I, I echo I echo your points to 100%. Um, Daley Thompson's a good mate of mine, and I spent a lot of time with him. And, you know, when, when I was working with Tim, we did a lot of training together. So, um, and I spoke to Daley about psychology, and, and he's, you know, arguably one of the best athletes ever to come out of Great Britain um, over the last, you know, 100 years. Uh, and he was, he was unbeaten for, I think it was 10 years as a decathlete. Um, and he doesn't believe in psychology. And, and the reason he, uh, how he backed it up was you take ownership of, of what you're doing and take accountability and responsibility. So you've got to make sure that are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you training well? Are you dotting the I's, crossing the T's? And, if you, and, and I guarantee that most, most people who are going, oh, I need a psychologist. They haven't actually reviewed their accountability of themselves and actually looked at, you know, am I doing everything right? And they're looking for this. The psychologist is going to give me this answer and it's going to give me this magic pill that's going to transform me. Whereas whereas I think if, if, if as an athlete, you you do all the things you can do 100 um, percent, then you won't need a psychologist. And the best psychologist is yourself, because if you if you're in a situation where you're five, three down in the third and you you, you always seem to lose seven, five or seven, six in the third. The only way you're going to overcome that little, that little mountain is by putting yourself in that position time and time again and using different cues and looking at, you know, the mistake you made in that situation and, and saying, I'm not going to make that same mistake again. So I, I do echo Robbie's because, point. Uh, I'd like to I, I, can I, I would like to jump in with a point there because someone, as someone who has benefited a lot from a sports psychologist, I think it's, 
I hear what you're saying and it's it's great, but it's it sounds I just think it's dangerous to make it sound like it's you can just fix it, you know, because if it were that easy, everybody would do it. And I think a lot of people also benefited from it. So so sometimes you need a notch in that direction to be able to take ownership. Of course, you always need to take ownership. And maybe she would have gotten there eventually something. And maybe she got there because she had a process with a sports psychologist and learned what to do and maybe what not to do. Or maybe maybe something triggered subconsciously. But at the end of the day, sports psychologists are not. Yes, of course, you need to take responsibility yourself. But I think uh, I think it's important that to think that it, it can really have a good effect. And I know, for example, I had a lot of uh, benefit from it. And and maybe a sports psychologist can help you take ownership and and uh, and and be that more individual person. So I don't, I don't disagree, but I think it 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 is very individual and uh, and and it certainly can have a great benefit. Yeah, right. So to take so just sorry, Emily, just real quick, just to add on that point, my interpretation of of of, of Zabalenka's press conference about the psychologist was basically. I've had the psychologist in the past. It's really helped me in the past, but now it's time for me to take ownership and accountability. And that's what she did. So she wasn't saying uh, the psychologist hadn't worked. I think what she was saying is now time for me to 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 stand step up to the plate and take ownership. Yeah, and just on, bit... Freddie, on Freddie's point, I think a lot of it for each individual person is in order to accept something and change it, you've got to understand it first. And I think a lot of players wouldn't understand why something's just disappeared like a serve or something like that. And I think that's where the psychologist for some players can actually help them to understand. It's not going to help them necessarily to change it, but it might help them to understand what's going on and then they're able to do something about it. Um, but yeah, it could be, could be very that having done the years that she has done with great coaches or, or with the psychology that she, she has understood that she, she was then able to change it and release release whatever it was that was that was stuck in a in a head about her serve um I thought it was really interesting on the first point of the of the final that she double faulted and then rolled her eyes smiled and got on with it and accepted it straight away um whereas I think sometimes when you see someone in their first Grand Slam final and they don't start that well you've got that kind of ominous thing like a Pliskova at Wimbledon um situation where they just freeze and I think when she had that reaction, I thought that was great because you just knew that she was going to keep going for it and keep going massive on the second serve like she did for for the majority of the match because she knew she couldn't get away with with not going big on the serve. If I go to the doctors, got, I've got the flu, I go to the doctors and the doctor prescribes me a, a course of treatment, I'm not fixed you know, I have to, I still have to take ownership of, of taking the medication, of maybe eating well, resting well, doing these things. If I, if I bring you on board, Vozzy, as my physical trainer, I'm sorry, because you've got a big job ahead, and, <laughs> and, and you, and you prescribe me a certain program, I have to take ownership to still do that program. You know, if, if I go to, to you, Freddie, to sort my forehand out, sorry, you've got a big job ahead, mate. <laughs> and and you and you prescribe a certain thing or you work on a certain technical element, a certain tactical element. I still have to take ownership of turning up every day, giving my best 100% to do it. And the way that I look at psychology, you see, I, I, I just look at it, it's mental fitness. 
it's all it is. You've got physical fitness, you've got mental fitness. And, and 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 ultimately, sports psychologists, anybody, there's nobody in the world can just fix somebody, can just sort somebody until the person takes the ownership of it. Same with nutrition. You know, somebody can prescribe the best nutrition ever, but unless someone takes ownership to actually sticking to that by the by the absolute book, they're not gonna have the they're not gonna have the effect. And 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 that's where I I just I think the ownership thing is is massive and, and Robbie you're right to bring that up in all aspects of life in all aspects of life as soon as you have ultimate power of the mind when you take ownership and take responsibility of of situations you know but that the, I don't also <clears throat> want us to to undervalue the great work that a lot of sports psychologists are doing. And, and to that point, taking ownership can be to seek out help as well. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I would also like to change change the wording from a mental fitness to mental health. You, you, you want to have a, a healthy mind. Um, and I think, I think psychology plays um, a huge role, role in that. I'm not saying that don't use a psychologist. I was just using different examples. But I think it could be a psychologist. It may not even be tennis related that they need help on. It may be personal related, related uh, situations that they need help on. It may be something from their childhood. It may, you know, it may be something with an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's important to, uh, to, to really emphasize the, the changing of wording from mental fitness to mental health. Yeah, but um, I think I think Vozzy on that. I think it's a bit like f- this physical health and this physical fitness. And as we get <laughs> hyper, more high performing, the more high performing that 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 fitness level is. And I think it's the same on the mind. I think there's there's mental health absolutely, which we we all have to take care of our mental health. But there's also high performance fitness of the mind, which which Djokovic works three hours a day on. You know, he's, mm. you know, he's mindfulness is, you know, whatever it might be to get to that absolute pinnacle of, of where you're at. So I, I, I think, look, maybe we need a podcast just on this because it's, um, I don't think we've ever had a topic where everyone's jumping in and, and, and it's, it's great because it's a, it's, it's a passionate bit, but I, I do want to, I do want to move us on as, as well as, you know, fantastic points being made. And I'd love for us to pick that up again. And I want to bring it to you, Robbie, because you mentioned off air that, you know, I, I, I trust you that you picked Djokovic and Riva Kina before the event. You know, I know you weren't at the, at the preview. Um, so what was, what was your Riva Kina pick? Why, what did you see that maybe, you know, again, we're maybe overlooking her, you know, she's, she's won Wimbledon. She's now a finalist at Australian Open. I know she didn't get the Wimbledon points. So her rankings not fully reflected, but what did you see in her before the event that, that, that led to you believing she could win, win the event? Well, I'll tell you, that's some sneaky insight because I was at that new um, exhibition event that they had in Dubai, that uh, international tennis league that was put on there. And there were some pretty decent players yeah, there. Just on that, Robbie, uh, thanks for inviting me for dinner when I messaged you. You just you just aired my message. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I did. Some of us have to work for a living. Eh? Um, so <laughs> I, I'd watch the players there and you always get a sense, DK, at some of these exhibition events, who's like really there. To, to train and use it as preparation for the preseason and who's just picking up a check. And I can tell you, uh, a lot of the women were really into it. And Sviantek and Rebekina were very much into it. And of course, they had to play against each other. And 
Rebecca gave a, a good old-fashioned hiding, and they were both very into it. I think the score was four and one at the end. And she literally hit her off the court. And not too dissimilar, <laughs> playing tennis like a Novak Djokovic, her length is exceptional. And that's something that gets overlooked. She still doesn't have the consistency of, of say, Novak, but her length makes it so difficult to attack her. And then uh, someone earlier mentioned how good her serve is. Her serve is proper. Hey? It is a proper pop on that serve. Um, so you couple the serve where it's very difficult to attack the first ball. Then you, you throw in the fact that she's got such good depth on her groundies. And she broke Sviantek there. And that sat in my brain. When the draw came out and I saw they were on track to meet in the fourth round, I thought, hang on. This bodes well because the fact that she's just beaten her so recently and beaten her so badly, I thought she was in with a good shout. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it was a pretty routine victory again. And I'm sure that off the back of beating her in a match that was very competitive and in so much as that they were both into it in Dubai, she came into that fourth round match with a lot of confidence. Very good. And and my 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 last one before we 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 move on just i want i want to mention a, a couple couple of other good r results from the event but to to bring you in emily we we spoke obviously about different dark horses and a lot of us mentioned these these newcomers and there's lots of lots of new faces in the women's game um but azarenka made semi-finals you know certainly you know someone who's been around for a long time Vekic, Ostapenko, Pliskova, you know, names that that we've seen, you know, we've seen at the business end of slams for many years, all had good runs, at least to the quarterfinals, you know, so there's still there's still plenty of life left in in those players as well you know what was what was your take in general in the in the in the women's event and and who do you see coming up the rest of 2023 yeah, and I think it's a reflection of actually how tough it is to do well in a slam um, because the, those girls who are still consistently doing well have had that experience and they know what it takes. And I think Fozzie touched on it last time where actually the warm-up events sometimes don't always have a great reflection on how the slam's going to go. Um, I don't think... I, I, I wasn't aware of the scores from the exhibition, but Rybakina didn't have a great the, the the tournaments coming into um in, coming into Australia and, and and I think I think more than anything I think the young players coming through like like we said with Trivatova who did have a good tournament um but like the other ones I I do think a slam is it's a different nature it's a different beast to to other tournaments um and it's great that you've still got an Azarenka or an Ostapenko or that the, the young players have to beat. Um, I still don't think any of them is particularly capturing the non-diehard tennis fans' attention. And that, I think, is the problem in the sport. Although it is wide open, I don't think that the average person would know a Fruvatova or would know that Ostapenko is still doing well unless she has a fight with Danielle Collins like she did this week in Abu Dhabi. Um, but I think from a tennis perspective, I don't think that that's capturing the attention of people. Um, which is a shame because we can be pleased for Azarenka, but I don't think that's going to help to to market the sport in the way that is going to get new fans on board to watch Grand Slam tennis. And while while we're on the women's event, uh, the, the can I can I make one point with your question about all the older players? It also just shows how difficult it is to to pick a dark horse 
because there's so many players in the women's draw that have some kind of merit to them. Fred, don't make excuses because you can't pick a dark horse. You don't have to. Who is your dark horse? Lela, Lele Fernandez. Oh, well done. Yeah, good. Thank you. Appreciate it. But that's... Winner, winner, chicken dinner. But my point is, you have Ostapenko, you have Asarenka, you have Pliskova. These these girls all have merits that war- that 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 uh, that do that we can't pick them as dark horses. And I feel that there are so many women's players that have some kind of merit. So it's really difficult to pick the dark horses. Yeah. A bit of advice though, Freddie. McNally's not the one. <laughs> She's done and dusted for me now. She's Freddie, uh, I even picked her after. for you. I even picked her for you in the doubles. And 15 minutes yeah. before her first round doubles match, she retired and said she wasn't going to play. Yeah, so. she's done for me. She's she's dead to me. <laughs> I'm never going back there. She will be thankful of that. You know, you've been you've been nothing but a curse on her for the last two years, Freddie. Um, but on the, I want I want to also mention uh, Emily and uh, the women's doubles because. Yeah. Talking of dark horses, some for some reason, and talking about people that are maybe underwhelming and not in the public eye, this pair is like the Woodies. They're yeah. like the Bryans. I mean, if I had a little look this morning, and I was it's like, Rajkova and Sinikova, they've yeah. won, they've won the last three slams, last four slams that they've played. Last four that they played. And they're still under the radar. <laughs> yeah, they didn't play yeah, the French Open last year, but they won it in 2021. They yeah. won They won the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, it's like they literally just win. Like they it's win the everything. It's the coolest thing. And they're so great together. They've played since they were eight. They've played together in tournaments since they were eight. And there's absolutely, there's never any blame. They actually last year for the first time played a couple of tournaments when one of the they chose a different schedule when Siniakova wanted to play slightly lower tournament she wanted to play a 250 for singles so she would play with someone else um they played a couple separately but overall when it comes to the big events and the slams they're so consistent um and they also are they are sort of a step ahead of of everyone else we actually played them in Cleveland um in a 250 um, in just before US Open last year. And it was really interesting to play against them, having played the level of doubles um, that I have um, to then be able to play somebody of that level. Um, but I think most of all, just their teamwork and how little blame there is between them um, when, when something goes wrong. And even in they, they were challenged a little bit more in US Open um, in, in three sets um, by by a number of pairs, um, but I really feel like in 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 terms of tennis wise, they should be way more celebrated than they are being at the moment. No, no, absolutely. And then the men's doubles, Freddie. You know, to bring bring you in at this point, this was this was one. I mean, for me, I was you know up in the middle of the night watching watching my boys and they actually they lost to the to the to the winners Hitchy Carter and Kubler who you know there seems to be happening in Australia that they bring a couple of singles guys <laughs> together chuck them on the court put them on a big court get a load of energy and the, you know those guys came from from nowhere really i mean i i'd scouted them quite a bit i was watching my boys Glasspool Heliavara play them five love up in the first set thinking well these guys aren't up to much but then it just shows energy and tennis ability even on a doubles court even if you're not playing the perfect doubles strategy 
if you've got the right energy and you've got the tennis ability, you can you can do something. And they're a pretty special win for for the Australian pair as well. Yeah, and just to finish up the women's doubles, check out the championship point from Australian Open uh, 2022. It's one of my favorite championship points ever. Anyway, uh, with the boys, it just shows that doubles there's not that far away to us to a surprise. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a living example of of that as well, and it it gives a little bit of an edge to the doubles tournament that you know that every single match in the draw can go both ways. You don't really know that in the singles. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, and and it gives a little bit of intrigue. I think also during the tournament they even swapped return sides, uh, and they came. They were they were down and out and came back. And it, it's it's a good story. And and it also shows that if you're good tennis players, you can compete in doubles these days. Uh, there's much more room for not being a doubles player if you want than there was maybe 20, 30 years ago where it was much more set in your way. You had to play seven volley basically on a fast hard court and, and these things. And now you can kind of play good tennis and, and create momentum and then you can roll with it. And I like it. Uh, I like to see it. It's a good story. It's, uh, yeah, like you said, in Australia, there's, there always seems to be an Australian team that does well and 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 then gives give the crowd some something to to celebrate. So, yeah, and I think at the same time there's also a bit of a vacuum now in in men's doubles where where there's there's room for for the next super team to to take over after the basically essentially after the Bryans. So, yeah, it could be an interesting time ahead for doubles. And and Robbie, you, you mentioned earlier on about the the commercial side of the game and the Americans doing well. You know, it's great that the Aussies do well in Australia. You know, it gets it gets it going. And and the mixed doubles, we had a couple of big powerhouse countries. You know, in in Brazil, I think I believe it was the first Brazilians pair combined pair ever in Stefani and Matos to to win the event. And then we have to give a shout out as well to Rohan Bapana who. I believe he's older than me, Rohan. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, and I, I'm a right old forty two, right? Yeah. So he and then Mertzer in her in her last year, you know, that was it wasn't quite the swan song that we thought it might have been, you know, those guys winning, but something like that brings tennis alive in Brazil and India as well. Yeah, you know, two big markets, right? So anytime we've got viewers that are tuning in to watch the sport, youngsters taking up the sport. That's good for tennis in general. So yeah, just I'm pretty much reiterating what you've just said there, DK. Um, the bigger markets, if we can continue to tap into those, um, that's always good for the product. And I have to I have to give a shout out as well to the British domination in the wheelchair event as Alfie Hewitt and well done to him and his coach Craig Allen, and then. Uh, partnering up with Gordon Reed, who was there with one of my coaches, Bruno Gudu from, from the Academy as well. So it was great that we can say sort of tennis got a grand slam as well in, in Australia, um, which was incredible. And I'm going to put the question out there on, on the juniors. Uh, anybody watch the juniors? Did you see much of the juniors, Robbie, when, when you were over there? Because uh, one thing that was certainly interesting to me, the two girls, two Russian girls in the, in the final of the juniors age 15, you know, and that's it's it's quite interesting. I did a little bit of just research looking into it. The age of the girls was significantly lower. You know, you're looking at the 15 year olds doing well, whereas it whereas in the boys event, it tends to be those in the last year of juniors that, that are doing well. And the blocks from from Belgium 
you know, big tall guy, a bit Del Potro like won won the won the boys event. But did you manage to see any juniors when you were over there? I didn't actually this time around. I didn't see too much of the juniors. I would say the last two or three years I've kept a close eye on the juniors simply because my son was in that age category, the one who's just gone off to university in the States. But this year, for some reason, when I was walking past the outside courts, uh, it didn't catch my eye. And there was no you know, conscious decision to seek out what the juniors were doing. Um, and just on that matter, so often these days, you've got a lot of the top junior players, like a, you know, Landerloos or one of these kids, 15, 16 years of age, they're really playing futures, eh, DK, yeah. as far as the men are concerned. I think the one that's a big barometer to future success is the French Open. Often that we see the winner of the French juniors is the guy that almost you can guarantee is going to go on to be a top player. Whereas um, the other majors, probably less or so. And before I leave you guys, I, I have to get, give me a storyline. 2023, you know, you've got to redeem yourselves a little bit, guys, after your storylines from the Australian Open. You know, what storylines are we looking into? I know we mentioned a couple in the preview show. Um, you know, Sabalenka, now that she's got the confidence, is she going to take over? You know, we've got Anjabert just gone into surgery, so she's she's going to be out for a couple of months. Eager is looking forward to the clay courts, I would, am would imagine. Then on the men's side, you know, Novak Djokovic, is he going to get into America? You know, I was there. I arrived a couple of weeks ago. I certainly didn't get asked to if anyone to see any COVID passport or or to see anything like that. You know, is is Novak Djokovic going to get in, and is Carlos Alcaraz going to pick up where he left off at the end of last year? I think that's an interesting narrative as well. So, as we move in to getting closer to Indian Wells and Miami before we move into the clay courts, it all happens fast, Robbie. What, where should our attention be looking moving into 2023? I'd love to see uh, a fair few matchups between Alcaraz and Djokovic. I'll pay good money for that, I promise you. Um, I want to see uh, the continued surgence of young American players. I think that's potentially going to be a good story. You've got different characters there. In fact, Tommy Paul is probably one of the 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 most vanilla of all the characters there when you've got a TFO, you've got somebody who's got the shot-making ability of a quarter, uh, Ben Shelton, who's an exciting prospect. Of course, we all knew his dad, so there's a nice tennis history to that family. And as well as his mom, who's part of the Witskin tennis family, she was a Witskin. So for me, those are, those are two things that just spring to the top of my mind. And I think we're going to have one of the youngsters perhaps nicking a major this year, but Novak is going to be very hard to beat. I'm a big fan of Holger, not just because we got a Dane on this show. Um, when I was seeing some of the stuff that he was doing with Lars Christensen, that story in itself, those who don't know the Lars Christensen backstory, is an episode on its own. I think that guy is, has done wonders. You talk about a, a good development coach. I think he's done wonders with um, with uh, what he has. And I think Holger's going to be knocking on the door in the latter stages of a few of the majors. What about how, how about Ben Shelton being 42 in the world, only having uh, played in two countries in his life? It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> in our sport of all sports, eh? Unbelievable. You, you, you guys won't believe me on this, but I do have the paper to prove it. I had two <laughs> names written down as my dark horses in the, in the preview, and one was Seb Corder and the other one was Ben Shelton, but I didn't mention them. 
<clears throat> I didn't mention them, so I'm getting my retrospective mention in now. It's getting shameless head. now, Dan. It's getting shameless <laughs> now. He's shaking his head, but that was incredible that he'd never left America before he went to Australia. Unbelievable. Vozzy, come on, give us your 2023. What are we looking out for? Uh, I'm going to say Nadal retires after the French Open. I think the body, the body's uh, giving him all the answers um, on that. Um, and I think uh, Coco Goff is going to win a slam this year. Emily? Can I please go back to Noskova? I, I still like Noskova. Um, I think we're going to see her challenging for finals of WTA tournaments on a regular basis. I think, as you said, um, in the men's, I think, obviously, it's it's very, very difficult to see someone challenging for a slam. Um, but I think somebody like I don't know a quarter or something like that um is getting closer but from a personal point of view Lloyd Harris and for you South Africans um Lloyd Harris has uh, I don't know come back super quickly from his six months off with his wrist injury and he he had a pretty decent Australia um so I'd love to pick him from a personal point of view as a as a dark horse um perhaps as I said not for winning a slam but for, for challenging and towards the end of of ATP events and, and Freddie, we talked about Andy Murray's love of the game, you know, and we've also mentioned Holger a lot, but, you know, Holger went straight from Australian Open to to compete under your under your wings uh, in, in Denmark, and then he's gone straight off to, to the ATP 250. He seems to have that absolute love obsession of the game. You know, is, is, is 2023 the A wins a slam, or is it too early? Definitely not too early, I think. I think he could also... He's, he's only going one way the next few years. Uh, his tennis is outrageously good. I think he's the brightest of the youngsters. I think the reason why Carlos is having more early success is because he has a little more pop. I think as, as players come, I think Holger is a little more rounded. And I think in time, it's going to do him well. Uh, I think I said this before, that it maybe that's what's going to make him have his best results a little later than a Carlos maybe. But I think at the end of the career, it's going to make him more rounded. Now being on court with him the last week and seeing him in match and he's so good. It's outrageous. And to compare him to Andy, he's one of those guys. And I don't see that too often these days, which is um, something that I think is a good point with the New York side. You have to tell him to, to take a breather and relax because he wants it so much. And I think that's a good sign. He's obsessed and he's not going to re relent until he's achieved everything he wants to achieve. And that obsession is something that all the top guys have, I think. Brilliant. Guys, It's it's been a pleasure as always. Watch out for Serena Williams and Roger Federer making a comeback for mixed doubles at the US Open in September. <laughs> the, 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 that's, that's the one that we, we, we can't let go of those two legends yet. You know they'll give it. They'll give us one. What more are they? Goal. Are they gonna? Are they gonna play Eugene King and Rod Laver in the final, or what's happening here? <laughs> Let's see. And and I also want to see an Andy Murray run at Wimbledon. You know, a a, a semi-finals of Wimbledon. Murray, give us give us one more last last run uh, on the court that's behind you, Robbie. On our on our on our Zoom call. Um, but yeah, you've been stars as always, guys. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you again before you know it. The French Open will be upon us. So thanks a lot, guys, and and see you out there soon. Okay, oh, thanks, thanks, Dan. Uh, Cheers, guys. Uh, well, I'm. Um
I'm not sure that I was being deadly serious about Serena Williams pairing up with Roger Federer in 2023, but imagine it, it would be it would be incredible. But what I do know is we got some surprises in order, as we always do. We've got entertainment, we've got tournaments coming thick and fast. And and for me, especially actually, I've just just back from holiday 24 hours ago and I'm packing my bags again. Well, actually, there's a side story to that. I'm packing a new bag because that bag hasn't turned up yet as I'm off to Rotterdam for the ATP 500 tomorrow with Lloyd Glasspool and Harry Heliavara. So hoping the boys can get their 2023 back on track after a couple of injuries and looking forward to seeing close-up and personal maybe some of our next podcast guests as I get to see them in the players' lounge Maybe I'll take my microphone with me, but a great chance to network. And and let me know, who is it? Who do you want to see? Who do you want me to speak to and see if we can bring them on to control the controllables? And as I'm talking about the podcast, uh, we did mention on our last episode, we have a, a fantastic opportunity as we continue to move this podcast forward. And something that we've done at the Soto Tennis Academy over the last few years is give an opportunity for a placement student to come out for 12 months and work in the various areas of the academy. And this is our first year we're opening that up to be a control the controllables role, placement role, you know, for, for, for 12 months come be a part of the team and for you to learn all about podcasts, for you to bring your ideas for you to have a voice for you to be able to play a part in this in this brilliant team and help take this forward so if you have any interest if you know of anybody that might be interested in that if you take a look in the show notes you'll see the details please do pass it on i promise you for somebody you will have an incredible year out here in spain we're a fun bunch to work with you'll learn lots and we look forward to hearing from you and coming up next week, we have Dave Miley. And Dave Miley played a, a, a high role at the ITF for many, many years. And he's now the director of tennis at Kazakhstan, who are, who are having incredible results over the last couple of years with Rybakina in the final of the Australian Open again this year and obviously winner of Wimbledon last year and many juniors having great results in the juniors as well. Now Dave comes with a wealth of experience. You know, he's from Ireland, but he's played a big role in the world of tennis. He is one that you don't want to miss. He's an opinionated guy. He is a little bit like Marmite. You know, some of you might agree with what he says, some of you might not. But you want to make sure you tune into that one. And as ever, we have more guests coming your way. We want to hear from you. Reach out, get in touch. You'll see all of our details in the show notes. You know where we are. You can find us on Instagram. If you're struggling to find us also, any social media, just plug in Soto Tennis. You can also get in touch with us that way. We look forward to hearing from you. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.